All right, good morning. So uh, if we haven't met before, I'm Dave. I'm the high school pastor. And uh, before I forget to tell you this, when you guys come in next Sunday, you're going to go into the main room instead of this room. So we're going to switch rooms again. So um, is that a good thing? I think it's a good thing. Uh, so we get to be over there. So um, just keep that in mind for next Sunday. Now, um, we started a series uh, back at the beginning of summer called From the Heart. Been, we've been sharing what we wish someone had told us when we were in high school, but today is going to be different because what we're talking about today did not exist when I was in high school many, many years ago. So um, several years ago, we were planning a family vacation, and the dilemma was beach or mountains. And uh, we chose to go to Colorado, and so we chose the mountains, but the, the issue there, though, is that I like cities. My wife likes the desolate wilderness. And uh, so we made this deal where we go to Colorado, we're going to spend some time in a city, but then a few days in the middle of absolute nowhere. And so we got this little cabin that she found, I think, on Airbnb. And this cabin actually has some history to it. There's like a stagecoach connection to this cabin. It's really old. And it was on someone's property. I don't even know who they were. Some ranch in like western Colorado. And, um, and Part of this cabin was like standing back in the days when the stagecoach existed. And it was like a stagecoach stop. That's how old this place was. And so it was really cool, a cool, great idea. But then my wife says to me, she goes, but you have to know that there is no cell service and no Wi-Fi. And I felt like panic just come over my body, you know, and, uh, and thought, how are we going to live without that for several days? Now, once I adjusted, I really began to enjoy the experience, but this began to raise a question in me, which is this. Um, things like this are only a few years old, believe it or not, but it has become something that we absolutely cannot live without. I know many of you guys have never known life apart from that kind of technology, and so today is about technology, and we're talking about social media as well, how we're so connected to this that we become disconnected from one another. And uh, my goal, though, surprisingly, is not to bash technology. My goal this morning is not to sit here and be like, you know, technology is, is horrible and bad and that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, I will actually say in front of you this morning that technology is a gift from God. I think it's given to us by God. We've got to face, though, what it's doing to us and how it's changing us and how we relate to each other. So, um, if you're an outline person, if you like to take notes, here's my main four points in the outline. It's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And I want to show you how what God's intent was, I think, for technology as a whole, and then how sin affected it and how we can redeem it in our lives. So uh, first off is creation, because you may not realize this. My slide's not clicking whenever I click this, so I hit click. There we go. Um, so creation, what was God's intent for technology? So you might say, there was no technology at creation. I mean, they didn't even have underwear back then. So there was no technology. Um, well, that depends on how you define technology, because technology can be defined very broadly. It's the reordering of raw materials for human purposes. Our minds always jump to electronics when you think of technology, but it's really anything that's reordered for human purposes. So all the advances that we see in culture and society, 
This was God's intent. This is God's design for us. I think of Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, God has placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And I'll remind you, this is before sin enters the world, that God says, you're going to be in the garden, you're going to work the garden, you're going to keep it. And this is God's intent for them to work the earth, for them to subdue creation, even before sin enters the, enters the world, this is what they're supposed to do. When I was a kid, if my parents would make me do certain, like, yard work and stuff like that, I used to always, in the back of my head, I would get angry at Adam and Eve for the fall. And I would think, it's their fault that I have to do this work in the yard. That's really not true, because there was work before there was the fall. It's just that work became curse, and work became more difficult um, because of sin entering into the world. So in order for Adam and Eve to do this kind of work, they're going to need some tools. They're going to need some technology for them to do this kind of work in the Garden of Eden. So we also can see just throughout God's creation and how God has given us the ability to make certain things that technology has a way of modifying creation. That's really, I think, what what purpose it serves. Now, of course, we're not to exploit or abuse creation, but we modify creation so that humans can flourish and the world can flourish. I'm always amazed whenever I go to places like New York City. Anybody ever been to New York City before? And if you go to that place or any city that's that big, you just realize the technological marvel that a place like that is. When you're just walking around, you realize that every single thing that you see in that picture came out of the earth in some way, whether it's glass, steel, large stones, bricks, and then the, the idea that the whole city has this basement called the subway system, and just how all that operates together and works together, it's pretty phenomenal how we see technology being used in our world. It's phenomenal. So whenever someone reorders the ground to bring about food, that's technology. Whenever someone, a chemist, reorders elements and turns it into medicine, that's a form of technology, and this is, I think, God's design for us. I'll surprise you with something. You may not know this, but the Greek, we know that Jesus was a carpenter, and the Greek word for carpenter was tekton, where we get the word technology from. And so technology modifies creation, but it also helps edify souls. So you saw that on display up here on the stage. I mean, people use their hands and their God-given gifts to make things like guitars and microphones and things we can praise God with. When I think of the temple instruments that God had for the nation of Israel, each one of those was a technology, a way for us to make something that makes sound and noise that makes sense and that can glorify God as we worship God with those things. So technology has a way of helping us to edify and edifying our souls as we worship God together. So God, I think, means for us to have and use these things, but, and he creates us to be creative, but then there's the fall and there's, there's sin. And this is where we can see how technology takes a turn where technology has a way of establishing human power and in, in some negative ways sometimes. So whoever has technology can have power. And so because of sin... We often use technology to exploit, to abuse, to maintain power. Like evil people can maintain power because 
they have certain technologies. If you recall, two weeks ago, we looked in the book of Judges, in Judges 119, where it said Judah could not drive out the inhabitants because they had what? They had chariots of iron. That's a technology. So in ancient times, having chariots of iron was a total game changer. That surely beats someone who's on foot, right? So power often follows the technology. Next, technology has the power to shape relationships. You see, there's always this trade-off with technology, isn't there? As we change things, those things begin to change us and how we relate to each other. So, for example, not, not getting to the phone yet, but think about like just things like the car, the automobile. So how has the car shaped relationships? Well, I mean, for those of you that drive, I mean, you know, if someone cuts you off in traffic, we know what that can lead to. It can lead to road rage. It can lead to the, you know, if someone gives you the, the Texas one-finger wave, right? And there's like, you're like in this cocoon, and you don't, you don't see the faces. You don't see the people. And so road rage is more common because you're insulated by this vehicle. Whenever I'm at HEB, if someone cuts me off in an aisle with a cart, I'm not acting that way, right? And there's a reason for that because we're up close. We're, we're face-to-face. You, re, you remember that they're a human and that you're a human and there's like real people involved here. So we know how the car can change how we relate to people. I think of how uh, several years ago this became crystal clear for me. I was talking to a friend of mine who does Young Life here in Belton and Temple and he said, Dave, I recognize how different things are now compared to when I was growing up and when he was growing up, when he was having lunch with some guys, and he said, okay, who's, whose house are we going to go to to play video games? And they're all like, we don't go to the same house to play video games. We go to, like, I go to my house because I like my controller. He goes to his house. He likes his TV better. And they go to each other's house, like, different, their own houses to play online with each other. And so he has to decide well, which student am I going to follow to his house to play at his house with the other guys online as they communicate with each other over the Internet in this game deal? And he realized this is how it's different. You guys know this to be true. It's just very, very different. And then you get to things like social media. And again, I'm not bashing, but we need to see how it's changed us. Because of the digital world that we live in, you now have to manage two lives, not just one. I'm struck by what James K. A. Smith said in one of his books. He says, the home was a space to let down your guard, freed from the perpetual gaze of your peers. You could almost forget yourself. You could at least forget how, I love this, how gawky, pimpled, and weird you were, freed from the competition that characterizes teenagedom. No longer. The space of the home has been punctured by the intrusion of social media such that the competitive world of self-display and self-consciousness is always with us. So you have to manage not just your regular, everyday, in-person life, which is already hard enough, especially at your age, but you now have to manage two lives, the online version and then the real-life version. And there really, there's no escape. Home was no longer a refuge, and it's why many, I think, especially in the younger population, why many are so anxious and just on edge all the time, because 
you're having to manage these two different worlds. And so I do want to focus some time this morning talking about the phone and how it has shaped how we relate to each other. There's a really good book I'd recommend that you read it called The 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You by a guy named Tony Ranke. I'm taking four points from his book this morning. Here's what he talks about in his book. One of the ways it changes us is that we get lonely. Ironically, we're more connected but more disconnected than ever before. And as we connect more to things like this, we actually get lonelier. It works against us in our relationship building. So the question is why? Well, the issue is you're always seeing what you're missing out on. And it's inhibiting like this real connection, this real person-to-person connection. I mean, you could be on a vacation in Hawaii with your family and then be looking at Instagram and seeing your friends having fun without you back here in Bell County and somehow you be jealous of them. This is how it works. I mean, you're, you're constantly seeing what you're missing out on in those moments. And it's not just things like the phone, but most technology leads us into more isolation. So a guy named Guile Slade wrote this book called The Big Disconnect. And it's the story of technology and loneliness. He's talking about all kinds of technology, not just what we're talking about today. And he writes about how, like, street vendors used to give way to, like, vending machines. Like, you used to have to go to a person and buy something from an individual. And now you walk to, like, a robot, give it your credit card, and you, there's no person involved except for just you and the machine. And so that changes things. You think about how, like, many of your grandparents and great-grandparents remember a day when like milk would be delivered to your house by an actual person because refrigeration wasn't really a thing. And so um, that was a person to person, a person that you knew was bringing these things to your house. It's kind of crazy to think about. But now that we have refrigeration, we, have, we don't need people like that anymore, do we? I think about how, you know, bankers gave way to ATMs. I mean, there is an an app on my phone that my bank wants me to use, supposedly, and it's a way that I can deposit checks into the bank without ever having to go to the bank. And I just don't trust it. It's like I want to walk into the bank, hand the check to them, and watch them put it in the vault. Like, that's what I want to do, because I don't trust these things sometimes. But you can think of how this has changed how we relate to people. I also think about there's always a little bit of guilt that I have whenever I go to, the, um, to HEB or somewhere and, like, you use the self-checkout. And it's like, I feel, I'm like, I'm like, someone's losing a job because of what I'm doing right now. And, uh, but there's always the person at the self-checkout who's, like, hovering because they're the employee that, because, you know, we're dumb and we can't figure things out on our own. And so they're like, they're the one that's, and so when you mess it up, they're like, okay, what did you do, you know? And, and so, but you can see how you can go through your life and your day and never have to really interact with anybody. Like the world has set things up for us in this way. You know, one crazy example I heard recently is that in China they have these apps where women can date, and I imagine men can as well, women can date imaginary boyfriends or for the guys, girlfriends, and it's part game and part role play, you get to, you can choose to date characters in the game. And they will send you, these characters will send you personal messages 
in the morning, like, good morning, like it's real life. And you know it's fake, but people get caught up in these things. There was a woman who paid $40,000 for an LED billboard wishing her imaginary boyfriend a happy birthday. So this is not, this is not a dating app. You date the app. That's how this works. It just, it's just crazy. And so it's like in our attempt to escape, to escape loneliness, it leads to more loneliness. Tony Rankin, his book, says this. The smartphone is causing a social reversal. The desire to be alone in public, but never alone in seclusion. So when in public, it becomes our security blanket. But whenever we're alone, we seek this like false connection to the people and to the world that we're, we're a part of. I think we've got it backwards somehow. We need to connect in public, but then whenever we're alone, be okay sometimes with solitude. You know, I don't know if you ever plan to spend time with God in His Word and in prayer, but I imagine that things like this often get in the way, if you're like me, where, where you sit down to do it and you're just like, ah, oh, i got to check this one thing, just hang on a second. And I love this statement, or if you call it a formula, however you want to call it, um, by Tony Rankin in his book. He says that isolation plus feeding on vanity, which most of my cell phone use is, equals soul-starving loneliness. But isolation plus communion with God equals soul-feeding solitude. And so do you ever practice just solitude? Like, it's okay to be alone and not be connected to something else, except for just talking with God or even being with your own thoughts and being reflective on your life. We've talked about this over and over again, that you, you sitting with God and we discuss it at impact camp and, and up, up here almost, I think, monthly, the way to feed your soul, there is no shortcut to that. There is no other way to feed your soul. I think that's why many believers, we live shallow lives. We bring nothing really to a discussion or to the body of Christ because we're not really connecting with God in those ways ourselves. And so we, we get lonely. And the next thing I want to point out is that we become harsh to each other. So um, I've seen many sad displays of people in our church, mostly your parents and your grandparents, most likely, fighting on social media over theology or politics or cultural issues, vaccines, face masks. It is sad to me to watch how the body of Christ becomes fractured over such things we, we have this way of throwing digital rocks at people, and then we go run and we hide. Because it's easy online, right? Everyone knows that in, in written word, we're often more abrasive with people, as opposed to face-to-face. -face. It's why Paul, when writing a tough letter, Paul would often say things like, I long to see you face-to-face. -face. Because he knows whenever he's face-to-face -face with somebody, he's going to remember their humanity, and remember that he loves and cares for them. So whenever Paul was talking to a church that he was kind of rebuking, he would always say, I long to see you face to face, because that's when you look at someone and you can see 
who this person really is. Because in written word, we're often more abrasive and more belligerent. I read something this past week that really hit me. It said that social media, for a lot of people, is more about identity than ideas. That most of us are just going to these things, affirming our identity and affirming our tribe of thought and what part of whatever group we associate ourselves with. And we just go there to just reinforce it and reinforce it and reinforce it. And again, I know this is mostly like your parents and grandparents doing this kind of stuff, not so much you guys at your age possibly, but there are still ways in which people at your age are going to social media for their identity. And it happens in all kinds of ways. So we become harsh to each other. Thirdly, we are addicted to distraction. Now I know that you know that we're addicted to distraction. But what you may not know is how intentional all of it is. And so I want to pull back the curtain for a moment and let you see into the world that um, this really is. There's a guy named, I can't even pronounce this guy's name. I'm not going to try. But he wrote a book called Hooked and subtitled How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And he does conferences for Silicon Valley companies where they pay upwards of $1,700 per person to learn how to get people hooked on a device or an app. This is his job. And so I know you thought that you were just lazy, and maybe you are, I don't know. But there's actually like a plan that people have to like get you addicted to things, especially at a young age, and it's designed this way. In one of his books, he says, feelings of boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, and indecisiveness often instigate a slight pain or irritation and prompt an almost instantaneous and often mindless action to quell the negative sensation. And that's a lot of words, but what he's saying is that if you find in yourself, you're just kind of bored, and you just find it's like this nervous tick where you're like, I, I just got to go check it. I got to go check my phone. I just got to go check it. I got to go check it again. And it's like, you, you're like, why am I even doing this? I don't really know why I'm even doing this right now, but it's why we go over and over and over again, because the thing is designed to suck you in. There's, there's people that are designing it intentionally to do this to you. So his job is to help companies make their product more addictive, and it's intentional. There's a guy named uh, Justin Rosenstein. Doesn't he look like a tech guy? I think he looks like a tech guy. This is the guy who designed the like button for Facebook. Now, this goes back several years. I mean, you might, I thought that Facebook was like born with the like button. But um, apparently it was developed later on, and he's the one that de de designed the like button for Facebook, and, and realized that when people say something or post something, if there was a way to be affirmed by people quickly and accumulatively, well, they would keep going back and checking over and over and over again. So he designs the like button. Well, years later, he quits Facebook. And the question is why? Well, he began to see the addictive nature in the thing that he created. So here he is, he's, he's going around the city with his family, I guess, and he's seeing, you know, mom and dad ignore each other, or the kids not talk to each other, and they'll be on their devices. And so imagine 
you're the one that develops some of the things that is causing this disconnection in society, begins to feel some guilt and shame over it, and he decides to say, you know what, I'm done with it. And he quit Facebook. This next person is my cousin, and he's super intelligent, very, very gifted. He's not a believer, um, but he went to Yale. He worked at Google after going to Yale, and everyone knows that, that YouTube is owned by Google. And so his first job coming out of college was this kind of big job. You know, everyone's like, oh, you get to work for Google. And I would see him at family functions, and I would say, Josh, you know, how's the job going? I mean, you're, you're working at Google. That's like the, everybody wants to work for Google, right? And he would just be like, that's okay. And over time, he began to realize what his real job was. And what it was is just getting people more addicted to YouTube. I mean, you guys know this to be true. Whenever you're on YouTube and you watch something, what happens? You don't stop there. There's always something else and then something else because the algorithms are set so that they know what you like and what you want, and they begin feeding that to you. And next thing you know, an hour later, you're like, how did I just waste an hour of time? Well, there are people like my cousin. You can thank him for things like this, who um, work really hard, they get bonuses to make these things happen. So when he was working there, he said that YouTube had this goal of one billion hours viewed daily worldwide. And once they reached it, the next thing, were they satisfied? No, that it became, now we want two billion. And so my cousin did the exact same thing that Justin Rosenstein did. He saw through it and he said, you know what, I can't, I can't do this. And so he quit. He quit working at Google, a job that many would want to have. So I'm trying to show you here that, like, I think we're being used. And that companies have this way of preying upon human weakness for their gain. I think we also can see how, especially in really young kids, how this can kill creativity and, and, and kill their imagination. So a few years ago, my daughter and I, we're at a Panera Bread. I would take her there after school sometimes, and she would do some work on her homework, and I would work at the, on my computer there at one of their tables. And we're sitting there, and she just goes, she's like, Daddy, can I have your phone? I'm bored. And at that point, we, were had, we had like a no phone rule during the week, and so it was Monday. I said, listen, you're not going to get the phone because it's, it's Monday. You, know, you can read a book or something else. And she's like, I'm just bored. I want something to do. And so I said, listen, you love to draw. I said, go get some paper from the people here at the store, and you can, you got some colored pencils, just draw something. You like to draw. And so she's like, okay. So she goes back and gets it, brings it back to the table, and I'm continuing to work on my computer. And 30 minutes later, she has this, like, six-page storybook that she has written. Can I show you some of these pictures here? Um, I'll show you a few pictures that she created that day. You can't read this, but I'll read this to you. The title of her story is The Fairy Mermaids and the Flutter Flip Club. And so that's picture number one. And then picture number two, and here's how the story goes. Once upon a time, a tiny village named Flipper Flutter had tiny fairies. Wait, not just fairies. They had fairy mermaids. And they laughed and they played all day long. There were three tiny fairies named Coral, Splash, and Flipper. And then this is 
page three. This thing went on for like six pages in 30 minutes. She's like, Daddy, I finished my book. And I'm just like, this is amazing. How did you design this? And listen, this was like the ultimate dad vindication moment. It was like, I said, see, Sienna, if I'd given you the phone, we wouldn't have fairy mermaids. And this world needs fairy mermaids, right? We need fairy mermaids. So for our young minds, this kind of addiction can kill imagination and creativity. And the last thing I want to tell you is that we ignore our flesh and blood. Over the last few years, I have seen youth ministry change dramatically. I think I read somewhere that in 2015 was the time when, in our culture, more than half the people got smartphones in 2015. And I will actually tell you that that was the year where I felt youth ministry shift completely. And I'm not kidding. It was like ident- it was actually that around that time. Because most students prefer to stay home on their phone than being with real people. That's the reality. So one major challenge in youth ministry is just getting students to leave the house. Listen to these quotes by students. These are quoted by Jean Twenge in her book. Or she says this, the numbers are stunning. 12th graders in 2015 are going out less often than 8th graders did as recently as 2009. 18-year-olds are now going out less often than 14-year-olds did just six years prior. I'm sure it's gotten even worse since then. And it's not just affecting the church, but it's affecting all their social interactions. Listen to this high school student. He says, I feel like we don't party as much. People stay in more often. My generation lost interest in socializing in person. They don't have physical get-togethers. They just text together, and they can just stay at home. And then there's this 13-year-old girl who says, we grew up with iPhones. We don't know how to communicate like normal people and look people in the eye and talk to them. Sometimes it makes us like aliens. We don't know how to talk to people anymore. So if we're going to be the church... We cannot be people that ignore our flesh and blood. Christianity has always been a flesh and blood religion. Jesus came in the flesh to be with us. And he spilled his blood for us on our behalf. And he calls us to be with one another in this real flesh and blood way. So the question is, what do we do? I think we've got to learn to embody Psalm 46.10 where the psalmist writes, Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. I think most of us, when it comes to things like this, it's about self-exaltation. And here we see that God is the one that needs to be exalted. We also see here there's a connection between stillness and the knowledge of God. There's a connection between being still and knowing who God is. It also implies that when we're not still in our minds and our hearts, that we forget who God is. And I think you and I, we lack stillness. We've got to learn how to foster this stillness. So the answer isn't just to avoid these things. How do we redeem it? Well, I think you've got to do a couple of things. The first is you've got to recognize the longing and recognize there are some deep things going on inside of you. 
when you just mindlessly go to these things. And so recognize the longing that, that underneath these activities that we do on the surface, the longing is we want to be known and loved. It comes down to that. It's really what's behind all of it. So God's given us this desire to be known, but we feel insecure because we know we're sinners and we're flawed. And so online, we present only what we want other people to see. And so a guy named Trevin Wax says that our online presence becomes like digital fig leaves to cover up ourselves, to cover up reality, trying to display our greatness while also hiding our brokenness. But here's the really good news. This longing is really met in the gospel. And so as you recognize the longing that's within you when you do these things, you've also got to remember the gospel. That God fully knows you, and yet he has chosen to still love you. In spite of your imperfections, in spite of what might be on the outside, in spite of what it might look like to you and others, that God has chosen to love you. And he fully There is not one being who knows you better than God knows you. And yet he chooses to love you. Just let that sink into your mind and heart. So the beauty of the gospel is that we can step into the light, fully known, fully loved. I love how Trevor Wax says this. We don't have to live for likes. We already live from love. You get to live from that place. And so we're going to close up here, and we're going to let you guys